you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. We've been in this book for a little over a year now. Lord willing, we'll be finished around uh, Easter. And we come to uh, a very simple passage uh, in Luke 21. It's just about the end of the world. So um, if you're new with us, it's a good Sunday for you to be here. So I'm going to explain all of it to you. Uh, it um, really is actually a sobering text uh, and a hopeful text. And so let's pray f uh, for the Lord's help as we have a look at it this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. As you say, even in this passage, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. We're thankful for the rock-solid word of our Lord. And we pray that today you would give us eyes to see and hearts to understand and a will to obey what you have to say here, knowing that we don't study the Bible to make our heads fat, but our hearts right. And we pray we would do that even now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, now that the uh, NFL season is over, fans begin to think about the future. They begin thinking about next year. Can the Chiefs do it again? Can my team win it all? In my case, the answer is no. We already know this about the future. I have three teams, actually the Commanders, the Saints, uh, and the Lions, and they're all bad. I don't know why I put myself through this kind of torture every year. Uh, the Lions have never made it to a Super Bowl, and I'm not uh, optimistic about next year. And when you think about the return of Jesus, when you think about the future, many people think about the future about like they think of the likelihood of the, the Lions making the Super Bowl. It's possible, but they're not very optimistic. And it certainly doesn't impact their everyday lives. But for Bible-believing Christians, we believe that Jesus is coming again, and it's a certainty. Jesus here in this text even predicts it, and Jesus' predictions are always correct. And this reality about the future that Jesus gives us in this text really should impact our everyday lives. As we've often quoted Luther around here who said, there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. That day when Jesus comes again impacts this day. And Jesus here is giving us some very important words about the future. That one day all evil uh, will, will be no more. One day glory and justice will arrive on this earth. One day Jesus will gather his own to himself. And that's what we get to think about for a few moments uh, this morning. You might call this in uh, Luke 21, Jesus' farewell prophecy. And it's about two things. The fall of Jerusalem and the coming of the Son of Man. The fall of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus Christ. The fall of Jerusalem that Jesus is describing here would happen about 40 years after he speaks these words. And, it, and they did come to pass. And this fall and the destruction of the temple was like a rehearsal for the second coming. It was a, as we say, a type of the second coming, a pattern of what would happen. It's a little apocalypse foreshadowing the climactic one that is still yet to happen. And so as we look at this text, we know that we have certainty regarding the future. We don't have all the specificity that we would like. Uh, about the future, but we do have certainty about the future. And Jesus gives us words that we need in order to prepare for the future. Now, you meet all sorts of people who are interested in the future, and they go about trying to discern the future in all sorts of ways, from uh, fortune cookies to tarot card readers uh, to uh, all the end-time speculations that have happened uh, throughout history. My friend David in, in seminary, would use, he used to love gathering up the guys and, and go to the French Quarter and uh, would set up a table and would say, we'll tell your future for free. 
And uh, we began to just open up uh, the, the Bible and began to, to talk to individuals there in the quarter about the future. Jesus gives us some certainties here. And he tells us about how to prepare for it. And he gives us hope as he does so. And so there are two things here that Jesus is describing. An immediate event and a long time away event. And that's how we'll look at this text this morning. Now, as Jesus begins to talk about the first thing in the future, the destruction of the Jerusalem and the destruction of, of the temple, that may not seem like a whole lot to us because we're so far removed from that particular event. And like if Jesus showed up today and said, hey, I'm going to destroy your church building, we would be disappointed. After all, we got new air condition in here and we have a new roof. We had a good work day. Like a lot of good things have happened over the last five or six years. But we would just say, uh, meet, meet us on the baseball field next week. We wouldn't stop worshiping. But for the Jews, this temple was the epicenter of their religious life. And to destroy the temple meant for them the end of the world had to be near. They were the original singers of that REM song. It's the end of the world and we know it. As Jesus uttered these words about the fall of the temple. But it's not the end. Jesus is actually talking about this event and then the far away event. And sometimes the prophets would speak about the future as if two events were very close to each other when in fact they were actually a long way from each other. Uh, we call that prophetic, prophetic telescoping. Uh, almost like you would see a mountain range and you would think a mountain is, is right behind the other only to discover if you got really close, they're a long way away. Or to use another baseball analogy, of course, if you go to Fenway Park and you see that Sidgo sign in left field, I've, I saw it on TV all my childhood, and you think that sign is right behind the left field wall and you get there and there's a highway in between the two. It's not at all close to that wall. Well, Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple and his second coming almost like they're back to back. But there's a lot of space in between. But the telling of the first event gives certainty that the second event will also happen. And the first event shows us patterns to anticipate when that second coming does occur. All right. Well, with that, let's look at it into those two parts. First of all, the destruction of the temple and then the, the, the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is preparing these disciples. He's preparing us in this text. And the dominant uh, note is not speculation about the future, but readiness and faithfulness. The disciples could never turn to Jesus and say, you could have told me, bro. No, Jesus is telling them, telling them what they can anticipate. And we can look at this first section in three parts. First of all, deception and discernment. Jesus tells them to uh, be aware of some, some, uh, some problems and some experiences and some false teachers. Somebody in verse 5, as you look there, is looking at the stones of the temple, and they're marveling at them. Now, this temple would have impressed us. It was one of the wonders of the world. It was twice the size of Solomon's temple. Josephus, the historian, said, as you approach the city, it looked like a snow-clad mountain. All of that marble, it was majestic. And that is where God said he would dwell with his people. And so Jesus shocks them in verse 6. When he says there's coming a day when there will not be one stone on top of another. It will all be toppled. Now some of these stones are about 40 feet long. And Jesus here then is making a shocking prediction. Something uh, massive has to take place for this to occur. And he's describing something that happened like the first temple in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. 
And that was a sign of God's judgment, and so it is here as well. This is not simply a political event where, God, where, where Rome would come and sack Jerusalem. They did that, but it was ultimately a sign of God's judgment. Something massive was about to take place. And so they ask in verses 7 and 8, when will these things take place? How can we know about this? And Jesus first gives them some non-signs. He, he tells them what not to do. He says, do not be led astray by false teachers. Do not go after them. And we know that um, there were a lot of false messiahs between this, uh, these words and the destruction of the temple. In fact, it might help you on your timeline to think in these categories, if you just round up things, the crucifixion at AD 30, the, the book of Acts ends in AD 60, and then the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So what Jesus says, you turn over to the book of Acts, and you see a lot of the things taking place before the destruction of this temple. In fact, one of the things you see is a lot of false messiahs mentioned. Acts 5, 36, and 7, there are a couple of guys that are mentioned there that started some movement. There are other figures in history uh, that also led these mass movements in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, do not be led astray by these false teachers. Do not go after them. And that's a timeless word actually for us. There will always be false teachers and false prophets and false messiahs. A lot of them show up in Texas for whatever reason, uh, wearing white and drinking Kool-Aid. Uh, the craziest thing I once read was about a Canadian nudist arsonist cult. Uh, a bunch of guys speaking French and blowing stuff up in the name of Jesus. Well, that's actually not in the Bible. And we, we need to be aware that there's always going to be a version of Jesus that are going to be put forward, and we want to reject any non-biblical version of Jesus. Do not be led astray. Then he tells them another do not in verse 9. Do not be terrified. Don't freak out, he says. Don't lose your head. He's warning them about the, the temptation to try to read the tea leaves about everything. Instead, the focus is be faithful. This is one of the great ways we bear witness today in our world with, that is quite chaotic. Don't lose your head. Don't freak out. Because a mark of faith is not panic but poise a quiet confidence that God is in control he tells them do not be afraid so he tells them before this happens there's going to be deceivers but make sure you have discernment now the second thing he tells them regarding the destruction of Jerusalem he talks about opposition and the need for endurance verses 10 to 19 he begins to talk about these nations that would war against each other kingdoms warring against each other also about some disasters in the world like earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and there would be a great terror on the earth. Now we tend to think about all these things happening throughout history, and of course they do, but I think as Jesus first mentioned them, he's speaking about what will lead up to, to AD 70. And we know there are historic examples of, of, of all of these. That time period leading up to AD 70 was especially bloody. 20,000 Jews were killed in uh, Caesarea, 13,000 uh, slaughtered in Scythopolis, 50,000 slain in Alexandria, 10,000 in Damascus. And there were rumors of war that were everywhere. Tacitus, a historian, notes that there were conflicts in Germany, Africa, Gaul, Armenia. And what about earthquakes and famines? Well, we read about one of those famines in Acts 11, where a famine was uh, throughout the whole known world. There were three famines during Claudius' reign. And we also read about earthquakes in the book of Acts. 
One of them where Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And a great earthquake happens. And there were earthquakes in Crete and Smyrna and Rome, Laodicea and Colossae, that's present-day Turkey. All of these things would happen 40 years up to uh, this event. Everything that Jesus says comes to pass. But then he says something else to watch out for. Not only will there be these earthquakes and these conflicts between nations, but you'll also be persecuted. He's like, cheer up, guys. It's going to get worse. Verse uh, 12 Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Well, that's a great introduction to the book of Acts, isn't it? As Acts 4 and 5, they're speaking, and persecution begins. And Acts 6 and 7, Stephen speaks and is the first martyr. Later, Paul is brought before governors. He's brought before officials. And they're enduring this kind of opposition. And notice what Jesus says. When this hardship comes upon you in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Sometimes we think about opportunities to bear witness like the Ethiopian eunuch who looks to Philip and he says, Hey, he's reading the Bible. What, what is this? Who's this about? As he's reading Isaiah 53. That's a nice softball. Here it's like, hey, they all hate you. Well, that's terrible. No, this is your time to bear witness. Often in our hardships, Jesus gives us the best opportunities for witness. And here he tells the disciples, when you are brought before these leaders, you've got a listening audience. That's probably a better audience than church audience. Right? These, to, to go before these people that are they're listening to your word as you give a testimony in court. And Paul testifies in 2 Timothy chapter 4. On one occasion, he says, everybody deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. And he gave me success as I bore witness. Well, that's what Jesus tells these guys in the midst of your hardship, not to be complaining, but be commending Christ. And then verses 16 and 17, he notes the intensity of the opposition and he urges the disciples to endure. He says, even your family will hate you. Sometimes some of you will be uh, put to death. You'll be hated by all and why? For his namesake. Even though we bear the message of love and salvation, the gospel will always bring opposition. The devil hates the Lord Jesus. He hates our witness, and there will always be opposition. We'll be hated by all because we align ourselves with the Lord Jesus. But he tells them a great word of promise, doesn't he, in verse 18. But not a hair of your head will perish. I love that verse. Not a hair of my head will perish. I don't know where it all went, but, but I am comforted by this text. Not a, not a hair of it uh, will perish. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying to these guys, you won't suffer or you won't die. He's actually just told them that, right? What he's talking about here is eternally, you will not perish. You will be safe. James was beheaded in Acts 12, but ultimately, not a hair of his head perished. He's saying, I've got you. You may lose your physical life, but you will not be lost eternally. You will triumph forever. You see, then the call to endure is a call to endure with hope. Hope in the Bible is not fingers crossed. I hope it happens, but thumbs up. Jesus has got us. Suffering now, glory later. Now, we don't know what kind of plan the Lord has for us, 
Some of you may be called to glorify God through a relatively comfortable life. We all envy you. Others, you'll be called to glorify God through constant suffering. And many of us, it'll be a mixture of both. In any case, Jesus in this text is assuring us of God's sovereign care for us. Not a hair of our head will perish. The final section regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus gets more specific about what to anticipate immediately before this would take place. Verse 20, he talks about this wrath. He calls it God's wrath upon the city. Again, it's a, it's a divine judgment that was going to come upon Jerusalem. And he tells them to escape. He says that you'll see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. We know that Titus and his army did this beginning in AD 66. And that he says, when this happened, you will know that the desolation has come near. And he says, some will be tempted to flee uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And that's actually the opposite of what they need to do. Said they should head for the hills. He describes the distress. He describes the, the plight of women who are pregnant. This horrific scene. But the good news is he tells them ahead of time, do not stick around for it, but escape. Escape this, this moment in which God would exercise his judgment. Remember the parable we looked at a few weeks ago the, of the vineyard. Here, it, the, this parable will be enacted. The owner of the vineyard would come to execute judgment on the wicked tenants. It's not just a political event between Rome and Jerusalem. It was an act of divine judgment. And it would be a total annihilation, total destruction of the city. In fact, if you go to Rome today, you can see the Arch of Titus, which was built to commemorate this Roman victory. And Jesus describes the things that will take place around this and the distress that will happen. And then he uh, says in verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem may be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Now, <clears throat> the Gentiles and nations is the same word. It's the word ethne, ethnicity. And he's saying that an outside nation will come to destroy the city. But then that last phrase, I think, is a look further into the future until the times of the Gentiles um, are fulfilled. That is, the, until the mission to the nations is over. That there's going to be a time in which uh, the, the focus of, of gospel mission will be upon the nations until the end. And where we read in like Romans 11 when a massive number of Israel uh, are, are saved. But at any rate, he tells them to flee when you see these signs. And we know from history that many Christians were able to escape. They remember Jesus' words. Many of them uh, went to Pella in the Transjordan. Eusebius notes how the church was warned ahead of time. Of, of, of these things that were about to take place, and they did uh, uh, depart and find refuge. Now, again, there is a typological correspondence, a pattern here between what happened in Jerusalem and what will happen in the end. And the, the point is quite simple. Jesus tells us about judgment to come in the future so you don't have to endure it. The point is flee the wrath of God and find your refuge in Jesus Christ. There is a way of escape and his name is Jesus. This Jesus who utters these words would go to the cross and bear the wrath of God that we deserve so that we would not have to fear judgment, but actually we could anticipate his coming with hope and say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is kind to give us this word ahead of time. Now, this is very out of step with culture. A lot of people hate the idea of God's wrath, 
They think it would be unloving for God to execute judgment. But this shows how little people think of God's holiness and how trivial they think sin is. No, it is serious. And a judgment is coming. But we don't have to face it if we trust in Jesus Christ and we find our refuge in him, the one who was slain on behalf of us. Praise be to God that we have that way of escape through our Lord Jesus. And that leads us then to the second section, which is about the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus begins to speak about here the, the kind of fear and trepidation that will come upon the earth in the end and a salvation that should give believers hope. He describes very cosmic signs, verse 25, as he begins to speak of these things. In the sun, moon, stars, and the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. So now you see that the judgment has shifted, not just from Jerusalem in the city, in the temple, but now it's among the nations. It's, it's on the earth. Now the sun and moon and stars are involved because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. And so you, you feel this, this chaos and this judgment. The waters are often a place of chaos and judgment in the Bible. And he describes the reaction of people in this time. People fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world. So the whole world will experience this. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So that's the terrifying aspect of this text. That's the, the awe of, of judgment. But then there is this picture of the coming of the Son of Man. That Jesus says for believers is a word of encouragement and hope. He says, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I wonder if you believe that. The Son of Man, this, this description of Jesus that Daniel the prophet uses. In great power and great glory, he is coming. And it says that they will see him. You notice that. His coming will not be a secret this is not like the first coming of Jesus when they didn't know where the baby was. Remember that? Uh, Herod's like, hey, uh, where, where's the baby? Um, he's fumbling around with maps. He's, he's asking people, where is Jesus? Nobody will, will be asking, hey, did Jesus return? No, every eye will see him. The world will see him. It will be unmistakable. And the veil that had cloaked the Son of Man in the incarnation will be lifted, and we will see his glory, and we will sense his power. The author of Thessalonians says that some will cower in fear and anguish, but believers will marvel at him. That's our future church. And I love this image of Jesus riding on a cloud, coming in with glory, an image of God's presence. You remember that there was a cloud at the transfiguration. In the Old Testament, there was a, a cloud at the tabernacle. And Jesus is coming back again, and the whole world will be a big holy of holies. He will come and renew the whole thing, and paradise will be restored as everything is purified and beautified and renewed. The Son of Man coming. And John tells us in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. Now, this hasn't happened yet. But just as certainly as the destruction of Jerusalem happened, so will the Son of Man and his coming uh, happen. And this gives us as believers a great sense of hope and courage and joy. And that's why, and, and notice verse 28, how that's mentioned. Now when these things take place, Jesus says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. 
we will experience what we've always wanted as Christians, the fullness of our salvation. A release from suffering, no fear of death, once and for all. The day of our great liberation. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. And then, he says, they'll see the Son of Man welcomed in grand style. A glorious welcome. When all this starts to happen, up on your feet. Stand tall with your heads high. Help is on the way. Church, that's good news today. Help is on the way. Help is on the way. We're waiting this grand finale of redemptive history. History for the believer does not end with our heads low, but our heads high. Our future is bright. You see, what Jesus tells us ahead of time should impact our lives right now. Because we know, in the end, he wins. He reigns. It's good news ahead of us. I don't know if you've had this kind of experience before where you're watching a, a game and someone else that you're texting with that you know has the game ahead of time than you do. Like they're, they're on cable and you're on Wi-Fi. This happens to me quite regularly because my dad has cable and I watch on Wi-Fi. And I, sometimes I'll take my watch off because I don't want him texting me because he texts me all during the games. Uh, and it'll be like, oh, final two free throws. We got to make them both. And I'm pacing the floor because I watch the game standing up. I'm usually trying to coach. Uh, they don't listen to me. But anyway, I'm trying to coach. And, and my, but my dad will spoil it and tell me what happens. Sometimes I like it. You know, when the team made the free throws, dad will text me sometimes, had it all the way. And I know before free throw two goes up, oh, we're good. We're good. He's, ne he's never wronged me. Like, that would be really bad of my dad to, to do that. <laughs> And, and his word about the future, to me, gives me peace in the presence. And Jesus tells us ahead of time what the outcome is. And that should just, just in our hearts, give us a great sense of peace and relief and joy and calm. The game's about over, and Jesus wins. Well, that gives us finally into this final section of certainty and preparedness. You've been very patient. Hang with me as we look at this last section here. Jesus gives them a parable about the fig tree. And he says, regarding this tree, like all trees, as soon as you see the leaf, verse 30, you'll know that the summer is near. That's simple enough. We understand that. You got a tree, start seeing leaves, summer is near. Then he says a few things that are not as clear. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. That is, Probably the fullness of the kingdom is here. The question is, what, what are these things? Are these things back to the fall of Jerusalem? Did Jesus now go back to talk about AD 70? Or is he in the same vein talking about these things at the end when he returns? Well, that impacts how you view verse 32. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until these things have taken place. So is that generation the first generation that saw the destruction of Jerusalem? Or is it the end time generation? Or does generation not mean generation at all? It means more like a type of people, like this twisted generation that scripture speaks of. Or is it a combination of both? Well, there's a lot there. Um, I'll let you work it out for yourselves. <laughs> I think it's best probably to see this in, in the same category of, of the coming of the Son of Man, that these things will take place, but there's possible this already not yet, or this, this um, destruction of Jerusalem being a type of the coming of the Son of Man 
That is, perhaps he's speaking of both of those generations, those that would be around for AD 70, and then speaking of another generation that would be around uh, when, when these signs would come before Jesus took place, before, before the words that Jesus mentions takes place. In any case, Jesus says that his words will never pass away, that heaven and earth may, but you can bank it. And what Jesus says will come to pass. And that's already been illustrated by the fact that AD 70 already happened. And that Jesus, everything that Jesus said about that event took place precisely the way he said it would come to pass. And there's therefore no need for us to doubt what he says about his second coming will come to pass. And so when we think about the second coming, we're not doing something that is abstracted from historical reality and historical events. There, there, it, is, it is attached to history because of what Jesus said in the immediate future happened. We can have great confidence that what he says about the end will also come to pass. So how do we prepare for that? Well, I'll close with these three words that Jesus gives us in verses 34 and following. He tells us to be careful, to be watchful, and to be prayerful. How do we live in light of the certain coming of Christ? First of all, be careful, verses 34 and 5. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness in the cares of life. So be careful. These, he mentions some things that can impact our spiritual well-being negatively. The first are sins of self-indulgence, dissipation, that is unbridled self-indulgence, drunkenness, and all that is associated with that. This is kind of the lifestyle of the younger brother and the, the story of the two sons. You see, when we live in this out-of-control way, we're having no regard for Jesus' word and not living with the reality that he's coming again. But notice also, it's very striking that he puts the cares of life on the same line as dissipation and drunkenness. It may not be too much partying that you need to be careful of. It's too much worrying. That's a little bit more striking to some. As Jesus says here, that if you're so consumed with the worries and cares of this life, you're not living in light of the sure reality of his second coming that brings us peace and calm and poise. We read earlier in the parable of the four soils that one of the ways the word is choked out of us is because we are too concerned with the cares of life. Now, this doesn't mean we don't do our job and we don't pay our bills and so on. It simply means that don't live as if those things are more important than the spiritual realities that we're reading about or that they're more sure, or that they, they just choke joy out of us. They choke uh, hope out of us. Jesus says his coming should have an impact in our day-to-day -day life as we avoid certain sins that lead us into destructive, uh, a destructive lifestyle, but also the sins that lead us into a very anxious, uh, anxious lifestyle that chokes spiritual life out of us. Be careful. Secondly, be, be watchful. He says in verse 35, stay awake. It's not a word about sleeping, but rather being alert, being sober-minded to the spiritual realities that are all around us. You and I are in a spiritual battle. And we read in Revelation 12 that Satan is raging because his days are short. The soon coming of Jesus Christ means that Satan is aggressive and he is, he is roaring and he's, he's out to devour us. As KB says in his great hip-hop song, 
coming from my neck now. When the game's about to end, you expect fouls. The game is about to end. We expect fouls. We, we expect warfare. Therefore, it's important that we stay awake to that reality. Satan will try to do a number of things to get us uh, offline, to, 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 to uh, overwhelm us with the cares of life. Be, be awake, be watchful. And then finally, be prayerful. Verse 36b, he says, Therefore, praying at all times that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray for strength to endure. Pray for strength to endure as you anticipate his coming. We need his strength. We need his power to overcome these temptations, to walk with a quiet confidence that he holds the future and our future is bright because of who he is. And then the last little piece here in verses 37 and 8 is like an example of faithfulness in Jesus. It's very striking. After a very supercharged chapter comes this example of quiet, simple faithfulness from Jesus. He knows what's ahead of him, the cross. And yet he's just quietly going about the Father's business. Notice how Luke puts it. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he would go out and lodge on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus just goes about his work of expounding the Bible. When the day's over, he goes to the Mount of Olives, goes to sleep, shows back up the next morning. Everybody comes to hear him. Some of Jesus' last moments before the cross are spent teaching these people who are hanging on his words. It's a great example for us, and it's also a great word to us. My friends, you can trust the word of Jesus Christ. His promises will come to pass. He says in this chapter, the temple will be destroyed, and it was. He says that he's coming back again, and he will. We can trust the word of Jesus. We are urged here to be faithful until he comes. Be careful, be watchful, be prayerful. And we can anticipate his coming with great hope. Our redemption is drawing near. Our help is on the way. In the end, Jesus wins, and all who are with him win. And so let's prepare accordingly. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the words of Jesus, for both the warnings of Jesus, as well as the hope that Jesus gives us in this text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for making a way for us to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And we know that there is only refuge in you. And we thank you that you welcome all who run to you for refuge and salvation. And we recognize that that came at a great cost. And now as we turn our hearts to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what you did in order to bring us the great salvation that we enjoy and to give us the hope that we've just discussed. So I pray that you would deepen our gratitude for all that you are and all that you have done and all that you, you will do as we prepare our hearts now to take your table. And we pray this all in your good name. And everybody said, amen.